is it obvious that the seagull is named Scully? Scuttle. Oh, Scuttle? Yeah, how is not that an Scully. obvious how is that, that an obvious seagull name? Silly. Scuttle? Because yeah. they scuttle, don't they? I think it's such a seagull name. I can't remember the name of the albatross in The Rescuers, though. Or The Rescuers Down Under. Or oh. is he in both? Do you remember? Wilbur! Hmm. I feel like all pigeons should be named Walter for some reason. But I think it's a Gilligan's Island episode when oh. Walter the pigeon showed up. I don't know about And now this. every pigeon looks like a Walter to me. I don't disagree with you. I didn't even know that. And I, I was ready to agree that all pigeons look like Walters. Mm-hmm. But do all Walters look like pigeons? Every Walter I've met. <laughs> <laughs> I've never met a Walter that wasn't a pigeon. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, hey, guys. Guess what hey you're guys. listening to? You're listening to In Real Life. I'm Emily. I'm Kim Zilla. And tonight we're talking about psychedelics. Whoa. We're not on psychedelics. We're doing this completely straight. We are. Yeah. Believe but it or not. We've learned a lot in these past couple of weeks, haven't we, Emily? We really have. We sort of looked at the the psychedelic experience from a couple different angles and perspectives mm -hmm. um, from two different people who are, are seeking something different from the experience and getting something different from it and approaching it in different ways. Very and, different ways. Yeah. And, but we had some great conversations. Unbelievable conversations. Yeah. So this might be a little bit of an extended play because I think there's so much to talk about. From one perspective, we have Adam Strauss, who's a stand-up comic, and he has a one-man show um, that's going on right now in Manhattan. And um, it's called The Mushroom Cure, and it's about him trying to cure his OCD, uh, very specific OCD, uh, by taking by taking the route of psychopharmacology. Yeah. And then from the other perspective, we have Colin, um, who is the head of the Brooklyn Psychedelics Society, um, which is a little more, that's sort of like focused on the community psychedelic mm. experience, sort of like creating a supportive community for people to find out more information about using face psychedelics. Face, FAQs. F yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and learning how it can be beneficial. And he talks a lot about... Um, sort of the like the spiritual experience of psychedelics mm -hmm. and like what it's like the the doors that it opens up in that way and he told some really good stories I thought so um I think well-rounded and and you know what it's a podcast so it can be long yeah enjoy guys nice thing. have a good time maybe like sit down with some mushrooms and yeah take it all in and if you see a pigeon on the way say hello hello Walter <laughs> or Scully Scuttle. Scuttle. It's a seagull. <laughs> well, you keep saying, like, oh, Scuttle is a seagull. Yeah, Scully There's is the... the detective from the X-Files, obviously. All right, but I don't understand the obvious connection between a scuttling seagull. You can tell us on the message board, but I think Scuttle sounds like a seagull name for sure. There are just some names that you hear it, and you're like, that's Not a good name Not Screechy or Flappy? No. No. Too on the nose. Well... Goodbye. <laughs> Say goodnight, Gracie. Screw you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my name is Adam Strauss, and I am the writer and performer of The Mushroom Cure. So the show, it's, it's a completely true story. 
And in a nutshell, I had very debilitating obsessive compulsive disorder, really just uh, crippling, uh, frankly. And, you know, for many years, I'd, <clears throat> I'd been on all sorts of medications. Uh, I'd seen many different specialists, OCD specialists, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. Uh, I tried different alternative therapies, you know, acupuncture, uh, hypnotism, really everything, anything that I encountered that seemed like it could help with OCD. Uh, and if you search the internet, you'll find a lot of different things that could potentially help any condition. Mm. I tried and nothing helped. The OCD was actually getting worse and worse. And then I stumbled across this scientific study, to date still the only scientific study of psychedelics for OCD. And it was a small pilot study. There were just nine subjects. Uh, and they gave them varying doses of psilocybin, which is the main um, psychoactive compound in hallucinogenic mushrooms. And all of the subjects had a significant remission of symptoms. And I, I read this study at a particularly desperate point in my own battle with OCD. And I really didn't have any experience with psychedelics at that point in my life, but I figured I didn't have anything to lose by trying it. So I set off, as I like to say, on a program of vigilante psychopharmacology. I, I tried to cure myself with psychedelics. And that's really the jumping off point of the show is when I when I find that study and the show recounts uh, what happens next. So I, I had a range of symptoms, but the main one was actually decision-making. So uh, people without OCD often are a bit surprised when I tell them this. They don't necessarily think of that as OCD, but people with OCD tend to get it. So mm. the best way I can illustrate is... <laughs> She's raising um, her hand over here, just so you know. <laughs> so, sorry. Oh. My co-host my co is raising her hand as far as uh, decision-making OCD, and I can absolutely vouch for this. Yeah, yeah and I, and I, 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 I think you. it's something that, you know, I wonder also if it's more prevalent in New York, given that this city is sort of the mm. apex of, I mean, mm. we have so many options in this city. Of course, everyone has a lot more options today than we had a generation ago, thanks to technology and uh, and other factors, you know, we can travel anywhere, we can sort of get anything delivered in short notice. But New York, I mean, you have even more options. There's every possible cuisine you could want, any possible form of entertainment. Uh, so for me, it was... It's so I, hard here. My anxiety is like through the roof just listening to you talk about it because it's so relatable. I'm like, I when I lived outside New York, it was like a thousand times easier. And then I moved back here and it's like, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, no, the city really does. Yeah, it, it's it, it, it is not an ideal place for people like you and me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and yeah, so the way it manifested more specifically for me, though, is it started fairly sudden. So I'd always had a lot of anxiety. I'd been diagnosed with depression and actually hospitalized for it mm -hmm. at age 18, but mm -hmm. I was not depressed. I, in hindsight, it seems very clear to me that I just had overwhelming anxiety and really didn't have the... Didn't, didn't know how to handle it, frankly. Uh, but I didn't develop OCD symptoms until a particularly significant romantic relationship ended. And once that relationship ended, the OCD actually kicked in pretty quickly. And it started with fairly trivial choices. So I talk about this in the show. I'd, I'd, I'd be getting dressed and I'd put on a shirt. And then I'd find some flaw in it. Or I'd just, you know, it wasn't the right shirt for whatever reason. It was I didn't like the color or it didn't fit right, but it wasn't the right shirt. So I'd put on another shirt. And as soon as I put on that second shirt, I'd realize, no, wait, the first shirt was the right shirt. And I'd put that shirt back on, and I'd just go back and forth and back and forth, putting on and taking off shirts for, you know, it, it could take hours. That was the beginning, and it got a lot worse. And it just started taking over. Basically, any decision I had to make, I would feel a lot of anxiety leading up to that decision. Oh, my 
Once I finally made the decision, I'd feel a little bit of relief, but just for a minute, you know, maybe five minutes. And then I'd feel this overwhelming compulsion to reverse my decision because I'd suddenly realize I'd made the wrong decision and the consequences were going to be my my mind would blow up the consequences to, you know, huge proportions. So it uh, it really took over pretty quickly. And it really started to infiltrate every decision, which is crippling, because if you think about it, you know, people say life is about decisions. I but I'd go a step further and say life isn't about decisions. Life actually is decisions. That's what our existence is. Even one light is. We're just, it's a succession of making decisions. And we don't necessarily think of all those decisions as decisions because they tend to be routine. But they are, you know, what to eat, what to wear, um, you know, whether to respond to that text message now or in five minutes. Uh, what to watch, you know, every decision, when to go to the bathroom. And all of those decisions suddenly became huge for me. And I would just get trapped. You know, I talk in the show about I'd be walking on the street and I'd realize, no, I walked down the other side of the street. So I'd cross over and then I'd realize, no, I had it right the first time. And I would literally zigzag down the streets of New York. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's, it's ridiculous, but it was, it was pretty horrific. And it just got worse and worse, and it became very, very hard to function um, to the point that, you know, I started spending just days, sometimes more than a week at a time, just holed up in my apartment, just completely obsessed with, in hindsight, I see these meaningless choices, but at the time, they every decision started to feel like it was life death to me. Mm-hmm. And that's the way OCD often works, is it kind of, it's very progressive. It's sort of, because I look at OCD as a... Um, <clears throat> Look at it as a way to avoid anxiety that actually creates more anxiety. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. If you look at someone with, say, classic hand-washing OCD, they'll feel anxious because they think they're contaminated. They'll wash their hands. They'll feel a little bit of relief, but then they'll think, well, they missed a spot. So they'll get more anxious, so they'll wash again. The anxiety goes down, but it creeps back up. And over time, the more you engage in the obsessive behavior, the more anxious you get. It's, you, you think you're taking care of the anxiety in the short term, but actually you're feeding it. So you said this came out after your the ending of your relationship, or or did you have this like within the relationship, and this was uh, this ended the relationship because of a lot of these actions? I think it was both. So these tendencies um, were starting to take root, and it was it was certainly hard for my partner mm. uh, for her to handle. But it, they didn't really fully flower until the relationship ended. And I look at it as, mm. you know, in hindsight, I think what happened, I, I don't really talk about this, I don't talk about that past relationship much much in the show, mm. but I view it as, you know, I've had a significant heartbreak, and I think rather than just experiencing that loss in my body, in my chest, you know, really feeling that heartbreak, I instead went into my head and had sort of this, you know, magical notion that if I just could get every decision right, I would feel happy. I would feel fine. And so that's what I tried to do. Oh, man. So when did you officially get diagnosed? So I was diagnosed, it, it was soon after this relationship ended, um, it, because it did start quite suddenly with the decision-making. Again, I, I'd emphasize that. I had a lot of anxiety, but I didn't particularly have difficulty making decisions. Yeah. So in terms of what the relationship, the demise of the relationship was hastened by what I'd say the anxiety and the control issues I was I was having. Um, but this decision-making thing really happened afterwards, and I was seeing a therapist 
anyway, because I had seen therapists most of my life for, you know, anxiety. And the therapist, as I was talking to him about this, he said, you know, this is odd because the more you, you talk about this, this pattern is textbook OCD. He mm-hmm. said the, the symptoms, the, the decision-making, I haven't seen that before, but the pattern of basically repeating a behavior, in my case, repeating, making decisions, making reversing decisions, but repeating a behavior to avoid a feared outcome is classic OCD. And, uh, and it took a little while for me to accept it, but as you know, I explored it more with him, it, it, it did make sense. It did fit the OCD model. And since then, you know, as a result of doing this show, I meet a lot of people with OCD, and I, I've since come to learn that decision-making OCD is actually pretty common. Hmm. I uh, will say that I've actually never met anybody else who's had it before. <laughs> this is sort of a unique conversation for me because this is the first time I realized this is a thing. So <laughs> this may end up being yeah. more profound than we realized. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, can't hear the, the wisps of her nodding her head. And she wrote <laughs> in front like, of me, France. this is so real. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm the one that 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 found you. Yeah. <laughs> this is a big surprise for her coming into the room and having uh, having, having to approach like your own reality. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> but did you initially approach um, dealing with this by uh, like going through therapy and or um, trying medication or or like what sort or of even self medicating? Yeah, yeah, what sorts of things did you try to like to get past it before you got to? Um, like psychopharmacology? Yeah, well, sort of all of the above. So I was already in therapy, and as luck would have it, the therapist I was seeing was a cognitive behavioral therapist, which is still like the first-line treatment for OCD. Cognitive behavioral therapy has the best track record for, for OCD. I, I believe psychedelics will ultimately prove to be more beneficial, but, mm-hmm. you know, I've accepted treatment at CBT. And the therapist I saw happened to be very experienced with OCD. So even though he was treating me for general anxiety, it was it was a pretty easy shift. So he started using the classic cognitive behavioral therapy techniques for OCD, which is basically there's a few of them, but it's like exposure and response prevention. I love CBT. So, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it can and it can be incredibly. I should emphasize this for some people. CBT is absolutely life changing with OCD. The idea is you take someone with hand washing with contamination fear. And you would, for example, have them touch the subway pole mm-hmm. and not wash their hands. Uh, or maybe you escalate even more. You'd have them touch a toilet in, you know, in Penn Station and not wash their hands. The idea is you, you expose yourself to the thing you're afraid of and you don't, you don't respond in the maladaptive, in the ritualistic way. So he had me doing this by, he, he'd have me try to intentionally make the wrong decision and not change it. And... It was a pretty ingenious approach, but it just didn't work. I mm. just couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, so I was already on medications, <laughs> coincidentally, or, or not, because the, the truth is there aren't that many you know, different psychiatric medications for anxiety and depression. So I was already on SSRIs, which are mm-hmm. the standard. So, sorry? Oh, that's the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors? Exactly. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the standard pharmacotherapy for OCD. So I, I was already, at the time I was diagnosed, I was already taking a pretty large dose of Lexapro. We subsequently tried different SSRIs. Uh, I started seeing that, I think he's the head of psychopharmacology at NYU, a, 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 man, a man named uh, Dr. Michael Dolchin, who was really, really caring and really wanted to help me. 
and we tried a lot of different things, adjunct therapy, we added in antipsychotics, we added in all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, this over a period of years, just trying everything in the, in the psychiatric toolbox and things, it wasn't even that they stayed the same, they were just progressively getting worse and worse. Hmm. Did, you, did you have any prior experience with psychedelics before you embarked on the psychopharmacology direction? So a little bit. So in college, I had tried um, I had tried mushrooms once and LSD once, and the LSD did not work at all, which I now know is because I was already on SSRIs in yeah. college. I was on a different one. I was on, um, I I was on Paxil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for many people, not everyone, but for many people, SSRIs actually block the effects of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So... LSD had no effect. I, I did have one mushroom experience in college, and it was, it was I guess I would call it intriguing. It, was, it felt like I got a glimpse of sort of a different kind of reality, a different, a different way of experiencing things, but just a glimpse. And, you know, I was intrigued, but it was right before I graduated college, and, you know, I didn't really think about the experience much after that. And where are you so, going to get mushrooms once you're grown up right like after you leave college how do you find mushrooms <laughs> yes so um well, well so i mean i can give you a phone number when we're done with the interview, but <laughs> on the record uh, well no it's actually it's a good question because the truth is and this is this is kind of one of the running themes in the show the show is called the mushroom cure and i, I don't want to spoil it for anyone mushrooms are ultimately involved it was it was incredibly difficult to find mushrooms in New York City at this point in time. Huh. Uh, for whatever reason, it was just, you know, I was able to find LSD, which I, I didn't have much interest in because, you know, my interest was in that was in mushrooms because, you know, maybe like someone in keeping with someone who has OCD, I could be pretty rigid. So it was, you know, the study was of mushrooms, so I need to find mushrooms and I could not find them. And I had friends asking their drug dealers. I, I, I put out a lot of feelers. I was pretty... Uh, indiscreet about it uh, because I was desperate, but I could not find them for a long time. Eventually, though, I did find them. I actually found them through uh, through the Internet. Um, oh, the dark was, web? <laughs> well, this was pre... The dark web might have existed at this point <laughs> in time. This was this was a few years ago, but I didn't know about it. It was it was actually through... There, there are these psychedelic communities that kind of operate, and someone... It was it was through the it was through the psychedelic community in New York and someone I knew who eventually was able to through someone he knew was able to find this online vendor an overseas ven- vendor who I don't know exactly the mechanics of it it wasn't like a website you could just publicly go to but there was a way to access this website and actually order mushrooms and uh, and so that's what we did that's what he did. So you get these. So you've you've done kind of your own research in this, and then decide like I'm going to find mushrooms and do this on my own. Or are you under, are you under any assistance of any or like expert or yeah. under supervision of any doctor or psychiatrist or psychologist, or is this all well, on your own? So I so oddly enough, very soon after I read this study. I, I, I was already doing stand-up comedy at that point in time, um, and very soon after I, I read that study, I met comedy club in Times Square. I happened to meet a, a woman from Kansas, and we sort of hit it off, 
and we started we started seeing each other kind of long distance. And I didn't know this when I first met her, but after maybe a month into the relationship, I told her about the OCD, and I actually told her about it in the context of I was asking her if she could get mushrooms, if she knew who could get mushrooms back in Kansas, <laughs> and she revealed to me that she had unintentionally cured her clinical depression with psychedelic cactus. Oh. I know there was a lot, a lot of things in that sentence that I may need to unpack. Yeah, please <laughs> do. <laughs> so I'll start with the psychedelic cactus. So yeah. it turns out there, there's actually a, quite a few different psych, um, you know, psychedelically active plants and even some animals out there. And we think of mushrooms, uh, and there, there are quite a few, uh, there's, there's many mushroom species that contain psilocybin, but there's actually a lot of cacti species that contain mescaline. So the best known of these is peyote, um, which had its sort of heyday in the 60s. Now it's, it's illegal unless if you're Native American, in which case it's a permitted sacrament. But there's a lot of other cacti that also contain mescaline that are actually legal to own, including many cacti that are quite common. Um, San Pedro, Peruvian torch. These are cacti that sometimes you can find them at Home Depot. They're just common ornamental, you know, decorative cacti that people people keep in their apartments or plant on their lawns. And they contain uh, mescaline, which is a very potent psycho psychoactive drug. Huh. Now you can't just eat the cactus. So yeah, there's a certain process for for, for processing the cactus when yeah, you slice it up and you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I said, yeah, Emily. And she's like, huh. <laughs> I was like, how? <laughs> <laughs> actually, in the show, I actually do outline uh, how to make it, and then and then I have a and then I kind of joke with the audience that. Uh, that's part of the value of seeing the show is that you're going to learn how to make powerful drugs from normal household items. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so this woman, her, her name, her name is Grace. Uh, we're no longer together, but, um, oh, and I should mention she was getting her PhD in psychology. So she was not a doctor. She was not a, a licensed psychologist at that point in time, but she was in the process of getting her PhD in psychology. Um, and she wasn't studying psychedelics. She was studying something else, but she years earlier, she had, as I said, it was sort of unintentional on her part. She, she was, well, I'll get into a little bit more detail. So one of the main sellers of these psychedelic cacti was actually based in Kansas. I don't know if they're still around. It was a, a, uh, a largely internet business called Bouncing Bear Botanicals. And, uh, and they happened to be located right near where this woman grew up, um, you know, this woman who I was dating. And, and she became friends with the owner, and they started just giving her this cactus and she was taking it just kind of, you know, recreationally. She was 16, 17 years old at the time when she was doing this. This was, you know, years before I met her and she was though very depressed. And then she had this one psychedelic experience. And after that, her depression was gone. Now it wasn't quite that simple. She, she, she took pains to emphasize to me. She had certain insights from that experience that she had hard to integrate into her life. Mm -hmm. But when she told me this, I just heard kind of, wait, you were very depressed, which was already a shock because she didn't seem depressed at all to me. And this cactus essentially cured you. Well, forget about mushrooms. Where do we get this cactus? <laughs> and so that actually, uh, there are some cactus trips that I talk about in the show as well. Um, so, so sorry, this is my long-winded way of answering your question. Did I do this under a doctor's supervision? Certainly not in an above-ground sense, but so a lot of the psychedelic experiences I had were with this woman, um, you know, kind of supporting me there. Mm -hmm. 
but it was to be clear, you know, this was illegal underground. Um, you know, there, there was no, this was not a sanctioned therapy. Yeah. Right. Now, you said that she had a degree in psychology. Do I understand this correctly, that you also have a degree in psychology? Yeah. Right. That's so interesting. She, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, did, did you guys have, did you go for a degree after meeting her, or did you have your own path and you guys? Oh, no. I, 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 yeah, I met, I met her years after I graduated. Mm. Um, so, um, so, yeah, it, it was just. I mean, coincidence, but entirely in that I think it does speak to the fact that both of us, and this is probably true, I'd say, of of a lot of people who um, are interested or intrigued by psychedelics. I think both me and this woman, you know, probably the reason we both went into psychology is you have yeah. a certain fascination with, with how the mind works and maybe mm-hmm. to take it a step further, a desire to kind of, you know, heal yourself, a, re- a recognition of, well, I have my own mental issues you know, maybe by getting more insight, I can, uh, I can obtain some relief. So what was your first experience? Did you notice a significant difference after your first experience using, you started with cactus, right? Yeah, the first experience I had was was with cactus. And it was kind of anticlimactic, because I was still on these SSRIs. Mm -hmm. So after that experience, I got off of the SSRIs. And had a few other experiences with cactus. Um, well, so to answer your question, the first experiences I had, even once I got off the SSRIs and could experience the, the effects, they were intriguing, but not, they didn't seem to produce lasting benefit. So I'd have experiences mm-hmm. where there might be some insight. And more than insight, I'd say a lot of the value of psychedelics for me uh, was, was actually, experience, really, how can I put it? having more visceral, like, physical experiences. Hmm. Um, Because with OCD, you know, and I think probably everything we term mental illness, maybe not everything, but certainly, like, depression and OCD, you know, the real problem is avoidance. The real problem is that you're experiencing something you don't want to experience. In the case of OCD, there's anxiety and there's unwanted thoughts. So my thought, and it sounds like yours, could be, um, you know, I'm, I'm making a mistake. Like I'm making a mistake or I have to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. That thought pr- produces a certain amount of anxiety, which you know, I view anxiety as a physical sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to avoid that thought and that anxiety. So I try to fix the situation. I try to correct it by reversing my decision, which ultimately just produces more anxiety. Mm-hmm. So the way out of OCD, and this is what CBT aims to do as well, cognitive behavioral therapy, is it doesn't, it doesn't say get rid of the anxiety. It doesn't say get rid of the thought. It says actually the opposite. It says accept it. Allow it to be there. Because if you allow it to be there, it's not going to control you in the same way. Yeah. And I understood this intellectually. The therapist I was working with was a really gifted therapist. So I, I understood that. But acceptance is a tricky thing because acceptance, it's not something that you can understand. Or, or maybe put better, understanding doesn't, mean that you accept something. Acceptance, I, I've come to appreciate this more and more. It's really more of a physical thing, even a spiritual thing. It's kind of allowing it in at a bodily level. It's sort of that leap of faith, you know, letting go. And so I understood that intellectually, but I didn't really have the visceral slash spiritual experience of acceptance. I didn't experience it in my body. Uh, until psychedelics. Psychedelics did give me that experience, but they didn't give it to me immediately, or put more accurately, I have little glimpses of it, 
that would then produce short-lived relief because I'd realize, oh, I can do this when I'm not tripping, but that always kind of revert back to the OCD. But so, over time, sorry, go on. No, no, no. I mean, you could you could talk about over time. I just wanted to know, like, are you you're doing like full on doses? You're not microdosing at this point. Right. Like, what I are was, how are you going through yeah, no, life it's, it's, being completely high and <laughs> right, right. I, so, so the way I was doing this at the, the period of time that I talk about in the mushroom cure. I was doing, I mean, I was doing it in a pretty uncontrolled and frankly idiotic way, and there were some bad consequences. There was a, there was a 911 call, I had cops in my house, there was all oh, sorts no. of drama, which, mm. which makes for good drama in a play, but not a particularly, uh, not so much fun in life. Mm-hmm. So the smart way to do this is to do it with supervision, and now there's, there's an increasing network of underground psychedelic guides, as well as there's more and more above ground that you can enroll in if you meet the criteria. Um, and to do it, you know, spaced out. I was, you know, I was desperate. And I was also, part of OCD can be this very black and white thinking. And for me, it was like, okay, this stuff is going to fix me. It's going to heal me. And so I was hell-bent on getting that cure. So I was doing a lot of different psychedelics. In addition to the cactus and the mushrooms uh, and LSD, I also discovered this whole world of underground clandestine chemists who make these um these synthetic psychedelics that you can order from these gray market chemical supply labs in China. And I got a, yeah, it's this fascinating world um, that basically, you know, it's these chemists who have taken, so they take psilocybin and then they'd start tweaking the molecule to slightly different effects. Mm -hmm. And so there's hundreds, literally hundreds of these uh, synthetic psychedelics mostly invented by a man named Alexander Shulgin who passed away not long ago. Um, and you could order these from China, so I got a lot of those. So, so I was taking psychedelics. I was doing a pretty high-dose trip, probably, on average, I'd say twice a month, like roughly every other week. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in not well-controlled settings. In psychedelics, you know, they talk about set and setting. Your mindset, how you feel before the trip, as well as this, and your physical environment, have a huge impact on how the experience unfolds. You know, I was doing this stuff sometimes in very bad mental states. I'm just in my dingy, you know, apartment in Chelsea. Um, and so not surprisingly, I had some pretty challenging uh, and yeah. some quite terrifying experiences. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, it did benefit me. I mean, it's, it's kind of a truism, but people will say, you know, psychedelics, they don't give you what you want. They give you what you need. And I think there's my experience, certainly that held true because I did have experiences that kind of broke through my sort of the rigidity, the idea that, okay, I'm going to, cause I, I was very rigid the way I was approaching. I was approaching it that if I could have the right, you know, if I had the right dose of the right drug, I'd have the right experience that would cure my OCD. And one of the things psychedelics showed me is that, no, it's, it's, they're not going to do the work for me. I still have to do the work. But what they did give me that I didn't have before is that experience of acceptance. Mm. And so once I had experience of acceptance at a pretty profound level, that experience of, you know, really experiencing things that I did not want to happen, um, emotions that I didn't want to be having, um, thoughts I didn't want to be having, and just allowing them to be there. Not wanting them to be there, but allowing them to be there, not trying to get rid of them by engaging in these, these you know, compulsive reversing decisions. Once I had that experience on psychedelics, gradually I was able to start doing the same thing when I was tripping. 
Wow. So, and is, sorry. No, just, go ahead. I was, and just to finish it off, to yeah. kind of give a complete picture, and I, again, I don't want to spoil the show. There's <laughs> so, uh, but I I will say, you know, psychedelics were not a complete cure for me. I, I kind of, maybe appropriately enough, I, I had trouble deciding whether or not I'd say I have OCD. <laughs> At times I, but I, I certainly still have tendencies towards perfectionism that can cause problems in my life. Um, and I can still sometimes get caught up with the decision making. It's dramatically better. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take over at all the way it used to. But, um, but, but I wouldn't say I'm completely free of it. So I guess like my, what I'm wondering is there is a really strong control element in OCD and in, in my experience anyway, and needing to have that like sense of just control, which is like, like personally would be my aversion to using psychedelics. So was there an element of needing to overcome control in the first place to even get to the point of taking psychedelics because it puts you in a position where you're not in control? That is a great question. Yeah, it's, it is kind of this paradox. So you're absolutely right. OCD is, is, you know, it's control through and through. That is the signature of OCD, you know, and, and psychedelics. And I think I'll give myself credit. I think there must've been a part of me that knew that the only way I was going to let go of control is if I was kind of forced to do it. And I do think that's part of their value. Absolutely. I I don't, you know, like I've been reading, there's been some attempts uh, and I think there'll be other attempts of trying to develop drugs that work like psychedelics, but without the effects. This is happening particularly with ketamine, which has shown a lot of, which is not really a classical psychedelic, but has shown a lot of treatment for depression, but there's now been attempts to develop uh, something like ketamine, but that doesn't have the psychedelic effects. And I think, I think a lot of the benefit actually comes from the letting go of control. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we do live in a world, I I think, if you think, uh, I'm going to get a little far afield here, but you know, we evolved in a world where we couldn't really hold on to the illusion of control. 50,000 years ago, you know, you're living in the savannah or wherever, and, you know, there's, you're, you're not you're not the top of the food chain. You know, there are predators that can come out of the, the forest at any point in time. Um, you know, you might not be able to gather enough food. You know, you have a baby and the baby dies. There's just all sorts of thing, things are going wrong or out of your control, and that's in your face all the time. But I think one of the unique things about, you know, relatively recent modernity is that it's easy to forget that we're not in control because it seems like we have a lot of control. You know, again, coming back to especially in this city, any food that, you know, any of us want to eat, we can have delivered in 45 minutes, any entertainment we want to see, any type of porn you want. I mean, any, it's all at our fingertips. And, uh, and so I'm kind of thinking through this loud, but I wonder if that in some sense contributes to OCD where it's then easy to think, well, why can't I just control everything? Why can't I control my decisions? Why can't I get everything exactly right? Why can't I optimize everything in my life? And psychedelics, there's something archaic about them. And part of that, I think, is you, you do have that, what I would say is an illusion, but that illusion of control, it can be stripped away, especially with high-dose experiences. So that was terrifying and challenging for me, but ultimately very beneficial because when I talked about acceptance, I was kind of intentionally vague because this could turn into a, a long conversation. But part of the accepting for me was not just accepting 
you know, specific OCD thoughts and emotions, but also accepting at times the overwhelming terror I was feeling as a direct result of the, say, huge dose of mushrooms I had just taken. And realizing that if I try to fight that terror, I'm just going to make it worse. And the only thing to do is to just surrender and let go and, you know, let whatever happens happen. Yeah. Happen. Yeah. So it's almost like the step to taking, like, psychedelics is in itself like cognitive behavioral therapy because you're yeah it's you're you're doing immersion therapy just by taking them and like relinquishing control so yeah and and the tricky circle. thing is just by taking them though you still you know what i found is yeah i know i'm taking a large dose of mushrooms and i know that i'm letting go of control by taking it but when you know when the when push comes to shove and i'm actually in the experience and i'm being confronted with things that I don't want to be confronted with, memories or emotions, I still, you know, kick and scream. And I and I did have, again, I don't want to get into too much on the show, but when, when I called 911, I think part of it, because I called 911 myself, and I, not because I wanted the cops to my house, but as I say in the show, I had some burning existential questions, and no one else was picking up their phone. <laughs> I, I actually, the first, because of the transcript of the call, and the first, the first words I said to the 911 operator, I asked her if she was God. So, <laughs> That's wonderful. Do you, do you have the transcript or do you have the recording of the 911? I, 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 have, I have the recording. I have a CD of the... Uh, oh, my God. That's amazing. It's, wonderful. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty... Uh, so, but yeah, I think, I, you know, there were... I'd say with over multiple experiences, I gradually learned how to, instead of calling 911, how to just sort of surrender. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, but that's always, you know, I, I, I still use psychedelics occasionally and it's, you know, I still absolutely have fear. I would say at least going into the experience every time. Yeah. And each with full or, or macro doses. Have you have you played around with the micro dosing world? I know that's becoming huge, and it seems yeah. like it's more of like a a clarifying like focus kind of drug versus something that might work for your cases. But I'd love to hear if you have experience with that. Yeah, I have some limited experience. So I tried. So most of the micro dosing people are talking about is with LSD, and you're exactly right. It's it's the you know the thinking is that it will clarify thought, you know, give some energy, um, enhance cognition. So I did try microdosing LSD just for a little bit. I tried, it was less than two weeks. And um, honestly, the reason I stopped is I was about to go out to the Bay Area to do the mushroom cure there. And I was like, I'm going to be confronted with a lot of change anyway. Um, it just felt like it wasn't the right time. So I abandoned the experiment it was also hard to get the dosing right. I actually, there were a couple of times I thought I was taking a microdose, but it was stronger than I wanted it to be. And oddly, psychedelics, very, very high doses can actually be less anxiety provoking than moderate doses because at high doses, you're kind of forced to let go, but moderate doses, it can be this uncomfortable, sometimes people call it like halfway through the doorway feeling. So yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I experienced with when I was, when I was mm -hmm. microdosing LSD. It was just kind of like, well, I'm, I'm not tripping, but there's something there, but it doesn't really feel great. And Ooh, Yeah, that's like the worst. I've only experienced that with weed, but that's like the worst feeling. I hate it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. So 
so I gave up that experiment. But then more recently, I um, I tried microdosing with I'm going to well psilocybin. But again, I want to make the distinction not pure synthesized psilocybin, but with mushrooms. Mm-hmm. So I tried microdosing with mushrooms, and I did it for about a month and a half, and I didn't notice any real benefit or cost, um, and and I stopped. I stopped maybe a month ago because actually I took a slightly larger dose than my microdose, mm. my usual microdose one time, and I really didn't like it. And I, it kind of made me feel like, all right, if this is how I feel when I take a little bit more, I don't know if I really should trust that this stuff is helping me when I take it at subperceptual doses. Having said that, I I recently did a podcast with uh, a guy named Paul Austin, who's kind of a microdosing expert, and he had some good arguments that maybe it's worth giving it another try. So. I probably will try it again, and I think I will try it with mushrooms um, because, yeah, I, I like the idea of microdosing, that you're kind of getting a little taste of that state throughout your daily life mm-hmm. and that, therefore, it's easier to integrate it into your daily life. That that I think that's worth trying. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I, I guess I would say I'm a bit of a skeptic just because my own experience has been that these high doses and the kind of loss of control, that's where maybe, not maybe, that's where in my case a lot of the benefit I think has has been. But that doesn't necessarily mean that would hold true for everyone. The show has a, a very clear end. And the, and again, I don't want to give anything away, but, but the arc of the show is basically I had really horrific OCD. I found this study. I tried to cure myself. It was a rocky road, but I did ultimately find significant relief. I mean, there is a huge difference today versus, mm. you know, b- before b- before I had these these psychedelic experiences. But I, I am also clear in the show that, you know, I don't think people walk away from the show thinking I'm 100% cured. I don't want them to. But, but there's a big difference. And since the show, and I'm actually, working on a new show now, which is going to be a little bit of a, partially it, it will be kind of a sequel to The Mushroom Cure and that it will kind of catch people up with what's going on with me now. And since the show, since the period of, of time of The Mushroom Cure, I really didn't use psychedelics at all because I felt like I'd gotten so much relief. You know, I'd recovered so much from OCD. I just didn't feel the need or even the desire. It was kind of, a big part of it was, well, so I had one, the, the last trip I'd had on psychedelics until relatively recently I felt like I got a clear message where it was kind of like, hey, you know all this already. You've had a lot of recovery. So it's just kind of self-indulgent, you know, tripping here by the ocean when instead you should be putting the stuff that, you know, into practice and, you know, and trying to help other people and contribute to the world. It was kind of like you've, you've gotten enough medicine for now. Don't be greedy. And uh, and so I took that to heart. And so I hadn't done psychedelics. I'd done, you know, over five years maybe I'd, since the mushroom cure period, maybe I had had two psychedelic experiences. Hmm. Yeah, I think just two, maybe three. Um, and it had been several years since I had any experience. And then about a year and a half ago, I a year and a half ago, yeah, I uh, I started delving into the world of ayahuasca. I'm not sure if you're familiar with sure. that. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I because I felt you know, yeah, I was doing a lot better. But, it, you know, I felt like there was room for improvement. And I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly involved with the with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies that does a lot of this research. And so I read the studies that are coming out 
of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and the results are incredible and I felt like yeah I want to get some of that myself but there's no studies that I would qualify for it the studies were you know PTSD alcoholism smoking cessation mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I, I started thinking okay well I don't want to trip on my own um, I don't want to just do it recreationally at a party I want to have a therapeutic experience and it seemed like the best option was ayahuasca, where, you know, the sort of shamanic experience, well, shamanism is, you know, one of the first forms, maybe the first form of medicine. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I had a few, so I decided to do ayahuasca. I had a few experiences here in New York that were interesting, but, you know, it was hard for me to pin down the benefit, but there was enough there that I was intrigued. And so I finally, I decided to go to Peru and uh, and drank ayahuasca 10 times over the course of about two and a half weeks in Peru. That was about a year and a half ago. Whoa. Wow. wow. That's diving in head first. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So the yeah. next show is called The Ayahuasca Cure? <laughs> <laughs> there, those were, and those experiences, ayahuasca has been very helpful for me. Um, and I haven't done it. I haven't done it since March of 2017, so it's been about a year. I haven't done it since I got out of Peru, but I think I'm going to be doing it again soon. I feel like the time is right. Um, oh, since then, just to give you my full psychedelic resume, <laughs> I did do a guided mushroom journey in the Bay Area in May, where I took a very large dose, eight grams of mushrooms, with a trained guide. Now, this was an underground guide, mm-hmm. uh, but there's this whole lineage of guides coming out of the San Francisco Bay Area that have, they have a pretty rigorous training program. There's it's not unlike a medical residence. I don't know anything about. I, I had suddenly no idea. feel really grown up right now in not a good way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I am have, so out of it. Yeah. Have you read Michael Pollan's uh, book? No, no, uh-huh. but I've, I know about it. I, I've, it seems fascinating. It's really, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a great book. It's very well written. And he talks a lot about this guide community. Hmm. And so I, I was introduced through a mutual friend to a guide who's been working for years underground. And, you know, it's his profession. He's a licensed therapist. Um, but but the psychedelic element is obviously illegal and for that reason underground. But, yeah. but you know, he treats it very seriously. There's a whole intake process. There's a lot of preparatory work. So it's not like you just go in and they give you mushrooms. You have to meet with them several times beforehand. You meet with them afterwards. And, and I had this guided mushroom journey where um, it was... Uh, yeah, it was a very positive experience. That's amazing. Yeah. And then, hey, if we're being totally out in the open, because I am, I actually had a, not a very high dose, but I did have an LSD experience last week that was, um, that was positive. I was just alone in nature, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, had, had some, I think, useful insights. Nice. That sounds, that sounds incredible. I mean, just the, just the journey that you've been on, I, it, but it sounds like the city isn't really uh, helping. <laughs> it's all about those well, nature experiences and like going back to kind of primal roots in a way, you know? Absolutely. And, and actually, I'm going to be, so I'm going to be, I mentioned a new show I'm working on. That show is going to premiere in San Francisco in likely in November. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably going to make San Francisco or the San Francisco Bay Area I'm going to make that more of my home base than New York. And the mm. number one reason really is the nature. Yeah, that's um, so true. I, I've found it just, you know, nature really is medicine for me. It just kind of slows me down mm. and connects me to myself in a way that 
I, I think to do well in New York, you have to be grounded in yourself, and I, I am not. <laughs> Even with all the psychedelic work I've done, I do not consider myself a grounded person. I am easily um, I am sensitive. My emotions can be easily stirred, and a lot of stimulation can be fun and energizing. I, I don't think it's necessarily healthy for me. So I think my, my days, I'm sure New York will be, you know, I'll be coming back periodically, but I think calling New York my, my home, I think those days are numbered. Mm. Get that zip car so you can escape to the country <laughs> while you're here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, wow. So, you, oh, yeah, sorry, give, us, give us your show details. Tell people where they can go see this. Yeah, yes. So it's the Mushroom Cure, and the mushroomcure.com is the website. So we're playing right now at Theater 80 in the East Village, uh, St. Mark's Place. We're just doing the show once a week because I'm focusing on writing the new show, but it's, it's been a lot of fun doing it there. So we're playing there the next three Fridays. We're playing there Friday, August 31st, September 7th, and September 14th. We may be adding one more date. We may be adding September 22nd. I'm not sure about that, but then that's it. I think the show is... I think we'll be done with the show in New York because I've done it quite a bit in New York over the years. And actually, the show is probably done more or less everywhere. I am going to be doing it in San Antonio at the Tobin Center in mid-November. But um, but I feel like, yeah, I've told this story a lot. And, and frankly, it's a it's an intense show, you know, because I really I don't just talk about my experiences. I really relive them. And, you know, there's some of them are comedic, but there was also quite a bit of suffering involved. And I. I, sometimes I wonder if reliving these traumatic experiences in some sense is maybe, maybe not the healthiest thing for me to do. I do value doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But to go back, it's really a form of therapy. I mean, just talking about it and going through this, you know, I I feel like that has to be helpful in many ways. Yeah. I think it was initially, it was absolutely, it was cathartic when I first told the show, because I, when I first did the show, Mm. you know, it was the audience, as you'd imagine, it was my first performance. So there were a ton of friends and family there, and most of them didn't know I had OCD. Uh-huh. M- more of them probably knew about my psychedelic experiences than, than the OCD. Most of them didn't know either. So it was a real coming out, mm. and it felt incredibly cathartic because there's so much shame around OCD. I mean, the shame was just, yeah, man. you know, it was in some ways the worst part because I would be, you know, just the lying. I'd be, you know, calling into work, making excuses, lying to my friends that no, I couldn't go out to their birthday party. I wouldn't tell them because I've spent seven hours trying to find a shirt. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. the, the shame was just, you know, just crushing. Much, yeah. And so coming out with that was incredibly therapeutic. And it still is therapeutic more because I think it's a way of, for me to maybe help other people. And whether or not people mm-hmm. have OCD, yeah. I think seeing someone else be very open about their own suffering and their own struggles tends to make people feel a little bit better about what they're going through less alone mm-hmm. but i don't think i don't get the same sort of cathartic hit after you know i've done this yeah, show probably 50 times now so you sort of acclimate to it yeah and i can see what you mean about like it it could like telling it having to hold on to it to be able to tell it effectively over and over could be slightly hindering your ability to fully let it go yeah it's like i'm sort of still pretending to be this person yeah. and and to do it and to render it effectively on stage it's not just pretending i kind of have to believe it a little bit yeah and i don't know if that's really true i don't know if it really is hindering me but the thoughts occurred to me more than once where mm-hmm. i walk off stage you know after just kind of putting myself through hell and i'm like 
is this really is this really the best thing for me? <laughs> but but let me be clear, I really do value sharing the story with people. I mean, it's to me, it's still a a profound story. I say, I'm not saying the show, but you, they may love the show or they may hate the show, but the actual events that happened, I think, have a real power to them. And, and I, I'm honored that, you know, that I'm, I'm able to share them with people. And, uh, but yeah, I think, I'm not sure if we'll ever do the mushroom cure again after September 14th or possibly September 22nd. Well, I think it's, I think I have to bring Emily to this show. Yeah, I, I, I think, think we're. So too. I, yeah. think, <laughs> I think we're, you might just see our faces on Friday yeah. because <laughs> if there's tickets available, we are definitely going we'll be to. There uh, for sure. We're going to be there. Yeah, she it's needs. Great, this. I'd love. To, I'd love to see you both there. <laughs> I can't thank you enough. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Same. This was. I. I went into it thinking it was going to be really interesting and knowing like. Yeah. You know. I like knowing technically what you were going to talk about, but this was surprisingly poignant for me. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> yeah, next week we deal with my issues. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like honestly, like having having had like decision making based OCD for like like years and and not really knowing that it was a real thing for a lot of that time and just kind of like only very recently having done a little research on my own and being like oh this is a thing you have it's not like <laughs> you're not just nuts it's like <laughs> this is a real thing that other people experience too but I've never actually talked to anybody else who has that so and yeah, this has well, been really interesting I'm, I'm glad it's helpful that way and yeah I think a lot of it is there, there can be a lot of just relief just knowing that, oh, this is, like you said, this is a thing. You know, yeah. I'm not just crazy. I mean, I'm crazy, but it's not just that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's just that there's a lot of, there's a lot of you out there. And yeah, I think there are that's, other people you know, that are crazy this way, too. <laughs> sharing the yeah. conversation. Like you said, it's, it, it may not necessarily, you know, you may have hit a plateau as far as, like, your own immersion therapy going through this, this act, but, but now it is kind of an outward thing where you're kind of just sharing something that a lot of people haven't talked about in the in the past and and it's making people like Emily feel not so alone <laughs> yeah and now yeah. the story is out there and it can continue to have like rippling ramifications after this after you put it down <laughs> yeah so we'll uh we'll see you Friday yeah that, that sounds great. And yeah, thank you both so much. I, I really, really enjoyed this. Oh, thank me you. too. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Good luck with the show. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Colin Pugh, and I organize the Brooklyn Psychedelic Society. It is a community that is mainly for people who are looking to grow either spiritually or personally uh, through the safe use of psychedelics or entheogens. The reason why we have it is because there's not many places to talk about it comfortably after someone has like an experience from uh, a psychedelic like LSD or mushrooms uh, or ayahuasca. And um, usually a lot of the um, benefits they have seem to be something they have to kind of keep quiet about. Um, because they can't share the methods with which they're yielding those benefits. Yeah. So um, that's definitely the main function of it, I would say, is just uh, having a time and a place and a space for people to uh, socialize, meet each other, and feel like they're not uh, crazy for 
finding these things so meaningful to them? Um, technically, it's been around for about three years. It was started in 2015 by my friend and lawyer friend, uh, Danny Miller. But um, he ended up leaving about a year and a few months after. And I took it over in October of 2016. And how many members are there? Is it? I'm assuming it's growing because I'm hearing more and more about it yes. in the media and Well, everywhere. many of our members have uh, astral projected outside of this um, time frame continuum. <laughs> in, in, so Is it after you do flux. this a bunch? Do you speak like this all the time? <laughs> Let us keep Todd in our memory. <laughs> he he's, has departed this plane. Yes, he's now in zone purple <laughs> and not our zone. <laughs> um, technically, on meetup.com, we have 2,500 people. Um, but it's not like, you know, we're holding these rallies or something not we're not holding rallies <laughs> uh is uh usually like i'd say 40 to 50 people come to the meetup sometimes up to 60 or 70 but um wow, wow. yeah i mean that already is bigger than i expected it to be mm. actually i guess it helps being in new york that we have such a large following of people <laughs> um and also because it's like a coastal city, I think people are open to exploring alternatives mm. to um, things. So in this case, psychedelics as an alternative, you know, aid to uh, mental health or spiritual progress. So how do people, I mean, is this one of the positives of having an organization like yours that because you can't necessarily have this conversation with a doctor yeah, with your doctor you you have to kind of talk to people that have just experienced it on a day-to-day basis or on a regular regimen to be able to determine like what works what doesn't where to find it what to do with mm-hmm. it um you know uh, all of those unanswered questions that people like us yeah. ask um, I would say that is one of the benefits. A lot of it is just meeting people in the flesh. Um, flesh is kind of a creepy way to put it. You know, meeting people <laughs> in, real in life. the flesh. Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we had a course in January uh, called Becoming a Psychedelic Good Samaritan. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, it was a four-part course in January. We taught people how to... Uh, like the basics of harm reduction, if like you're going to use them, like how do you dose properly? How do you know what your goals are? How do you go into it with a healthy mindset? How do you take care of yourself when you're going through a difficult experience? How to be there for other people? And how do you do self-care after the experience? And we also had people sign up for a uh, community service at the beginning of the course. And they would do that while they were um, participants in the class uh, separately. And people would back as to how that informed their um you know development through psychedelics mm. it was only a month but it was really great really it was the brooklyn a, a long course yeah four part brooklyn society of ethical culture it went well i have had some troubling experiences uh i don't want to go into too much detail with but i, I have had experiences that um not so much from the psychedelic itself, but just kind of uh, 
being too, I don't know if cocksure is the right word here, (laughs) but being kind of really sold on some of the visions that, or the ideas you have. um, And like, like, while you're, while you're taking it. Yeah. And going with it and just like, um, not stopping even after the drug is like worn off. Like if you kind of like are convinced of something's truth and everyone else is like talking about you know their computer's broken or like when's the subway getting here you're like and here's how we're going to resurrect christ together (laughs) (laughs) you and me (laughs) you have big thoughts yeah Yeah. (laughs) guys go make your money or whatever (laughs) i'm gonna start fixing the world (laughs) i saw this on a beach (laughs) a drug i used internet money to buy (laughs) uh and you should be my follower. No, but yeah. So it's good to kind of have people who've like, oh yeah, I I thought that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of bullshit, man, or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so both for like you know the safety reasons, also just to what's called ground people, which you know people probably use in general. But in the psychedelic scene, that's the biggest risk. Is uh, well, there's a lot of risks, but um, just not being grounded. Um, not having a sense of density to your day-to-day life that psychedelics can undercut. And I have had an experience that for about a week, I was convinced I was Christ. At Buddha or Christ, it was very hard to tell. Something I thought was <laughs> magnificent about <laughs> my presence on this earth. <laughs> and I felt like I had some insight into things that I've never... that other people could also have if they just stopped something so i tried for about a week to like go about living like that and it caused like a lot of problems and like relationships and stuff because i was convinced that unless people kind of woke up from their slumber um Hmm. they were just continuing their own suffering and uh eventually i kind of stopped feeling like that it was very real feeling visceral experience i Mm -hmm. thought i was the buddha or christ or something um and that went away but uh when it got me it's kind of a personal thing but it got me interested in the mystical components of like christianity or buddhism and the idea is that we all kind of have this block between us and you know divinity that's ever present but obfuscated from self or something yeah so uh maybe what i saw was like a glimpse of that and i tried to not forget that but um my personal opinion is if someone has that but doesn't have the hasn't done the work of uprooting um like psychological like traumas or immaturities they have um they're not actually gonna be able to produce much fruit from that knowledge. Hmm. When I was kind of putting some of these questions together, what I found were these um, scientists from John Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, Imperial College of London, that believe that psychedelics can induce profound spiritual insights by temporarily turning off and turning down the default mode network, yes. which talks about that that's the part of the brain that's responsible for our ego and sense of self. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like 
that spiritual role was kind of pulled in based off of, uh, I mean, it, it, it comes together with, with research from real scientists. It's not yeah. just like, wow, man, I'm having like this awesome Religious trip experience or this the, yeah and it ties into the like the first thing you said which is that it's sort of an alternative way of uh like accessing that mm-hmm. um how did you put it spiritual yeah i i guess growth. just like spiritual growth and mm-hmm. and sort of like awakening and i think the problem is that the academy hasn't given enough attention to shamanism um, like indigenous shamanism or shamanism as it relates to psychedelics, everything's analyzed through a non-shamanistic psychological model, um, a neuroscientific leaning, which is fine, but there's other models uh, or ways to conceive of mental health that um, I think describing these spiritual experiences in terms of neuroscientific in- like insights has aided it becoming a tool uh, for, you know, people in business or tech sectors. I have, like, I have some gripes with that just because I think it's maybe analogous with, like, you know, McMindfulness meditation being used to just make people better capitalists. But, yeah, there's just one more. It's one more thing that people like, oh, great, how can I use this to make myself a better producer and it's really hard to fault them for that way of thinking it's you know all of us think we'll never make a deal with the devil until it's like hey how about a deal how about now yeah until you know i'm not saying that this is necessarily evil or whatever but um i think there's like a seriousness to spiritual components to it that just uh don't get as much limelight as they could because they're overshadowed by like business use of it it, it seems to have an analog in this, like, in, like, the westernization of stuff like Buddhism, right? Where, like, um, it seems that a lot of um, Westerners will sort of take uh, ideas of, like, Eastern religion or Eastern philosophy and westernize it and cherry-pick parts of it and, like, take the parts that are convenient to their lives, but they're not... Fully like, entrenched. They're not yeah. fully entrenched, and they're not looking at, at the... They're just looking at one side of it. Okay, there is, sure, that, like, creativity, productivity boosting side of it. But, like, you're – that's that's such a lopsided way of looking at it because you're ignoring this entire other spiritually beneficial side. And, like, what what is the detriment then of, like, taking only one side of the benefits of this yeah. experience? Interestingly, I think the definition of what qualifies as a religion – or religious use is very like uh, elementary compared to what people academics think about what qualifies as like religion. And I think in a general sense, um, the shift with like spirituality that we saw with like the new age and things like that, but like the, the cultural shift that's going on is realizing there's a component to religion, to living in religion that's about like transcending your your ego and like a lot of your psychological hangups and traumas, whether it's something, you know, really bad, like getting beaten or sexually abused, or if it's even if it's something where you, you got like rejected from the person you liked in like elementary school, not that those, those are equivalent, but everyone has things that they develop, you know, programs 
for happiness around like after they have that and that's the like liberatory aspects of psychedelics is re-encountering those and processing them and feeling lighter on your feet because all that uh unconscious energy you were spent in response to that is like now free to do other things and hopefully those other things are directed towards getting even closer to a, a selfless state rather than you know amassing more wealth or something but the religious the definition of religion i think is going to change and it's very rudimentary currently and i think there's a chance that if something if someone was saying like look i don't need to be a part of an order but if these things are helping me get closer to god then i have a constitutional right to use these and a lot of times it was seen as like a frivolous argument because it was seen as just like an excuse to use drugs and a lot of the culture in the 60s, like Timothy Leary and all that, like he started the League of Spiritual Discovery, which might have done more damage than, you know, benefit. But um, outside of the psychedelic realm, the idea that experiences and uh, digesting emotional trauma is a part of religion is becoming more culturally um, surfaced. You know, Donald Trump's president... Okay, so there's <laughs> that is like of all the badness and, uh, you know, yeah, ill feelings and butthurt that man's brought into our country's identity and feeling and everything. Um, it's still allowed for people to like listen to more ideas than I think they normally would. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer that crazy when someone's like, yeah, I like united with God and dropped my ego and transcended a lot of traumas from preschool what'd you do <laughs> bowling again todd <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah is, you everything can is off this, yeah. yeah everything yeah. is 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 off the table or on the table everything's on the table everything is on the table and we're gonna table. push it off the table yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's still uncool to talk about it sometimes because it's can be disturbing to people and i've been on uh, I've been in- insensitive sometimes with talking about it with people who don't kind of get freaked out by it and it's understandable. And um, so I do think it's just about being a sensitive person because sometimes I'll t- meet people in the psychedelic world who I'm like, I don't want to hear any more your stories. Like, because <laughs> like, it's like there are, you know, it's kind of a fringe group or fringe culture. So you do meet people who are also in the fringe and it's a, but it's, it's kind of getting more personal, but it's about like trying to love as many people, love everybody if you can, try to. The one interesting difference is nothing to do with anything, but the difference between like liking people and like loving people, I realize is like you might not like someone, but you can still try to love them. You said like that it's about sort of being sensitive when you're talking to people and that people are sometimes uncomfortable hearing about this what is it that makes people uncomfortable is it like the the discussion of having sort of like a religious or spiritual experience or is it the drug part i think it's the drug part uh, the idea even if some people are really uh sensitive to things being illegal and sometimes people in the psychedelic scene can get a little too out there and they forget that people are still worried about doing stuff i mean i i don't want to break the law either for the most part yeah. um <laughs> say that if anyone's listening <laughs> um so what i so it's kind of my own political views but um 
I think psychedelics will only be as beneficial to society to the, the to the degree to which we can make anyone participate in the conversation about what it is they do for people because the the benefits that come from them are totally um you can get those from other practices other like meditation yoga jogging like intensely or something maybe not jogging but (laughs) um it's really easy with the psychedelic experiences to get very kind of religious in a bad way and closed about the kind of cosmology of the world and life and kind of close yourself off to anyone who might have other opinions about it and um it's not necessarily that you'll disturb people with your own experiences but they just won't take you seriously sometimes if you're and that's another thing why people come to like the brooklyn psychedelic societies because everyone will take you seriously or at least like give you the benefit of the doubt that you're trying to iterate on some weird kind of experience you had I haven't personally had like a death experience, but from all people, I do believe that it's the kind I've had experience where I feel like I'm slipping away. It has been a component for people with that when they've taken, I've heard from ayahuasca or mushrooms or sometimes acid, like they feel like they're physically shutting down from what I've gathered. It is basically like shedding a lot of like all of like layers of your identity. Um, and even though there's like a lot of wholesome parts about us, we also have like a lot of dark parts and um, we can feel like attached to that. And we kind of forget that there's something beyond that. Um, so the therapeutic benefit I think comes from that. I, and again, I'm not sure if I've had it or not. I've had like a disillusion experience where I had concepts in my head, like my family, like even New York, like, subways like everything i kind of knew in my head it felt like it was being emptied out and, I, and it got to the point where i just didn't have like i had nothing in there i felt like completely emptied so and i didn't really this is from acid i didn't really feel like i died but i felt like cleared like just completely yeah empty of any concept of myself mm. um but at the research they did at johns hopkins in 2006 where they said like psychedelic or magic mushrooms can occasion mystical experiences and had like lasting changes in the personality they found that the death the like peak experience was what actually was the highest determining variable if whether or not it'd be therapeutic for people death is important like with shamanism which i don't know much about and apparently is a cultural a cultural appropriate to even label as like a unified practice because there's so many um differences in how it's done or even if it is a thing that can be labeled as an it that is done (laughs) but like the death experience like you shed all your skin all your identity and you then usually afterwards you connect with like you like unconditional love or whatever and it's that kind of imprint that's made in your heart brain and mind or whatever that there's like there is this uh unconditionally loving something that undergirds this crapshoot of a world sometimes seems like crap it seems like a you know things are kind of wacky but there's like this and then the ego's like reassembled this might be this is probably a very westernized way to look at it and people have debated that the scale they use at the johns hopkins which is called like i think the hood 
mysticism scale, like that rubric for determining if whether or not something qualifies as an experience um, is kind of more close, it's closer to like theology or like uh, religious philosophy rather than science. Um, but that's like its own other issue. But anyways, uh, there's usually when people, they have this death experience, they experience love, and then parts of their ego start to like kind of trickle back in. And how I've heard it described, and I'm not sure if it's happened to me, but people are able to kind of see the parts of themselves that they kind of need to like drop or disidentify from and the parts of themselves that they should like emphasize more and like, you know, like, ah, I, I get a lot of like nourishment when I go help people, uh, you know, at soup kitchens or I should like call my brother who I've been not communicative with or something like that. That makes sense. I mean, so yeah. you're saying that it's it may change you, but just like a therapy would change you, yeah. you know, where it's like you're you're kind of breaking down self and then rebuilding it with the right components. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a reboot. And again, I haven't had the death experience, but I think it's a part of it because like there's all these things you're attached to, and like a lot of people, what people usually have difficulty with psychedelic experiences. Um, is that they sense they're losing something, but that thing feels so key to their survival that they refuse to let go. And that is the advice that's that I, I think is like good advice. The best, like that is like tried and true is like surrender to it as much as you can and to face the thing, like go, like the only way to transform your pain is to go through it rather than like surrender, like rather than uh, trying to circumvent it anyway. Mm-hmm. So, like, facing it or surrendering to it, which is easier said than done. Like, yeah. it's not just a matter of saying. But I've heard people say, like, psychedelics are a way to work your surrendering muscles. And that it's helped people die and helps people actually die in, like, hospices. And when they either have uh, terminal cancer or recovering from a diagnosis they thought was terminal, they, like, cancer patients would have uh, difficulty disidentifying from their identity as a dying cancer patient so having this death experience allows them to see like oh there's like more to me than just this like disease i had and it allows them to kind of like drop that and also like work those surrendering muscles so now they're like no longer like i'm still gonna die but i can like actually people like hold on experience it for what it really is yeah Mm -hmm. yeah MAPS is a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Okay. Uh, and they um, f- help fund research into uh, treating PTSD with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, um, which is important to add because it's not just giving MDMA to people and everything's Gucci from there on in, but giving them MDMA uh, with a ther- while they're in the process of therapy. And it, it's had a very high success rate of treating PTSD, which is a infamously like pernicious ailment affecting a lot of our veterans and people who have had traumatic experiences. And mm-hmm. it's like, very effective. I think it got approved for breakthrough status. So it's going to be uh, legal quicker than we think. It's going to be very expensive, I think, also, which is like problematic. Um, but people i think the psychedelic society like there's all people a lot of people are depressed and anxious for reasons that go beyond just biology right like there's cultural mm-hmm. currents going around that even though technically people less people are dying less people are poor 
there's like this gripping sense that something's not all right. And there's all these studies online saying, hey, it cures depression and like helps you with yeah. anxiety. And if someone who, uh, I've been depressed before and I've experienced, and I've even lost a friend to suicide from, and that's actually one reason I got into psychedelics is I, the experiences I had, it's like, wow, if this person maybe had some therapeutic interaction with these drugs rather than, um, you know, a recreational one, maybe things could have been different, not sure, but the power of them, um, it seems kind of inhumane, like, if someone is reading online, like, this can cure my depression, and they're going on the dark net to buy these illegal drugs and take it and to try to help themselves, they no longer want to kill themselves, like, is that, is that person someone we'd prosecute in our current legal climate? Definitely. Religion as a definition, as a word, needs to, and it's my own kind of, it's my own project in my head, but, um, religion as a definition needs like change. Like if religion is about being able to be the highest Christians believe that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And if religion are the practices and tools you use to not just, uh, have that image, but like live in the likeness of that image, then people should have a religious right to use these psychedelics to help them do that. Like we would like if, we really had a nation full of Christ, not like, you know, out of there, but like unconditionally loving, like turning the other cheek when someone slaps you is not easy to do. And people are like, how did Christ do that? Well, he was maybe, maybe not God, but he also went through the desert and like faced temptations and like the, Satan. And that is like the, uh, the microcosm, microcosmic <laughs> experience. <laughs> I don't mean to, <laughs> this microcosmic experience of the psychedelic is it's a way you can face your demons to put it in theological terms. And, um, I think qualify like describing it outside of religious terminology or spiritual terminology. Um, it just seems like you're, it seems kind of like a little milk toast when we really have like, you know, spicy pad thai. <laughs> or something <laughs> if you're considering doing psychedelics don't necessarily rush it don't feel pressured and you know it's okay to not do them now or even ever and if you are trying to get psychedelics <laughs> rather than asking people directly for them i would suggest think of it like you're trying to get like a boyfriend or a girlfriend or something like you don't ask people like hey can you be my girlfriend or <laughs> maybe you're somebody <laughs> that you don't ask directly kind of just you know get to know people and ask them what their interests are and if they're doing these things and maybe something will come along your way but basically just like don't force it and um if you are using them in a a way that's causing you to like freak out like definitely reach out to either myself or any other society and get connected to like community and people because hmm. you know facing your demons is not something that a lot of people really do you can do it with like therapy but it's like really expensive especially in new york and the fact that you can potentially do that and be free from or at least less uh under the weight of depression or anxiety is like a a gift it's like a something that can it's a tool so seek out seek out the others which is like a timothy leary quote yeah that's really important you don't want to be doing these things in isolation. Nice